you have your Bible tonight, you can turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 12 through 25 really detail the life of Abram, who becomes Abraham. The, that account focuses on the promise of a child for Abram and Sarai in chapters 15 to 22, while 12 to 14 focused on the promise of land. Here, the promises of land and seed come together in chapter 15, which culminates in God's covenant with Abram. The divine promises we've seen from God to Abram beginning in chapter 12 are enshrined in a covenant here between the Lord and Abram, which is going to be affirmed and upheld, by the way, in Genesis 17. The structure of the passage, the way this is set up uh, by the author, helps us follow its teaching. The text is divided into two halves, okay, seed and descendants in 15, 1 to 6, and then the land issue in 7 to 19. First, the Lord reveals himself to Abram by a vision, makes promises to him, Abram responds with a complaint, still not understanding how God will fulfill his promise, not doubting it so much as not understanding how or when it's going to come about. Then God expands and extends his revelation a second time, this time affirming and reiterating his promises very clearly. The promises in the first half are centered on God's gift of descendants. The promises in the second are centered on the gift of land. The center of the text, however, is the God who makes this covenant. It focuses on the fulfillment of the first three promises God ever made to Abram in Genesis 12, 1-3. But this covenant ceremony demonstrates that Abram can do nothing to enter into this promise or to finally grab it for himself. That idea that we've seen becomes even more clear, as clear as it can get here. He can only rely on the Lord to fulfill his word if this is all going to come true. That's the only hope Abram has. And the way in which God makes the promise of his covenant is crystal clear in its description of the means of God's blessing, which is the means of salvation for all of Abram's true descendants. God makes a promise very deliberately to Abram in blood. Blood being for whichever one of these two parties would ever break the terms of this covenant. And in that we see the groundwork laid for Jesus Christ to be the only one who can actually fulfill this promise from the human side. The certainty of our salvation has once and for all been secured for all who have faith in the word of God and in the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, we ask tonight once more that you would be with us now as we worship through listening. Lord, as we uh, desire tonight to understand your word, I pray, Lord, that you would watch over me as I speak. Father, please help me be clear. Please, through me, uh, may the text make sense to your people. Lord, would you enable everyone to listen, everyone of every age here to understand these things and why these things matter so much. I pray and ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first six verses of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. 
and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. After Abram honored God as the source of his wealth in Genesis 14, God appears to Abram in a vision. God commands Abram not to be afraid and backs up the claim that he doesn't need to be with two statements. I will protect you or I am your shield and I will reward you. Now, both the command and the promises here point back to the events in chapter 14. Now, on the surface, what happened at the end of chapter 14 went very well for Abram. Um, but what if those four kings from the east come back for vengeance? Right? What, what if they come back to get what they wanted in the first place? The Lord will be Abram's shield. So he addresses that immediately. So when God chooses to love someone, it's irrevocable. It, it, it won't stop. He will protect Abram from any possible retaliation. But also at the end of Genesis 14, if you remember, Abram had refused any of the spoils of his victory. Because he wanted his wealth and provision to come from the Lord, not from the king of Sodom or any other earthly king. So it's a very strong moment for his faith. But what if God doesn't come through? That's, that's what you're seeing is that doubt. That's how quickly our circumstances can threaten the stability of our hearts, no matter how boldly we believe God. When, when, it, when, when all the fanfare of meeting with kings settles, and it's, it's, no, the Lord will be my reward, the Lord will be my portion, then it's like, okay, now you have to be. Now you have to come through. So the Lord promises Abram he will reward him. That's the second Part of his promise here. God is not telling Abram here that he will be his reward. That, that, in other words, that's a very easy principle to put out there for God. It would be, uh, don't, don't worry about having anything. I will be your reward. I'll make everything worthwhile with myself. God is telling Abram that he will compensate him for the fact that he didn't take any of the spoils. Because notice what Abram's response is. What will you give me? He doesn't ask, how will you be my reward? Abram is exasperated here. He wants to trust in the Lord. He knows that he should, but he doesn't understand how. God has made major promises to this man. Here he says that his reward will be very great. But Abram is still just waiting for the first child. Right? Just the beginning of this great nation that God has promised him. Just one child. Just one. That's what we're hearing in verse 3 with the word four. Right? I don't even have one son yet. I, it looks like one of my servants, somebody outside my family, is going to have to be my heir, which was the custom in the case of no son. But then the word of the Lord came to him in verse 4. He will have a child of his own. Your very own son shall be your heir. So God was not fudging the details of the promise, and he won't do that for us either. But waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. God brought him outside, told him to look up and count the stars if he could. God has done this in Genesis, brought Adam to look, or brought Eve to Adam to look at. God brought Abram outside and told him to look up, count the stars if he could, which you know you can't do. You ever tried to do that as a child? You, you immediately lose count. You lose your place. 
God promises him that his descendants will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the night sky, which God is just repeating the original promise. But again, in more grandiose terms, Abram was hanging on to this, believing this in verse 6. Genesis 15, 6 can be written in Hebrew as now Abram was believing in Yahweh and he credited it to him as righteousness because this is ongoing faith from the past. That's continuing or being repeated on Abram's part. It's not that his faith in verse 6 is just a consequence of what God showed him that night. Abram believes the word of this God. He keeps believing it He in God's promise. Abram is still clinging to God to fulfill his word to him. And God counts that as righteousness. Period. Period. Martin Luther said, so beautifully. One is not righteous who does much, but the one who without work believes much in Christ. From God's reckoning, remember, from God's reckoning, the only reckoning that will ultimately matter, to believe him is to be righteous. To stand perfect before him. Now, do you believe that, beloved? Do you believe that? You who believe on Christ for your salvation, do you also believe the truth that God has already declared you righteous? Do you know that's what you are? Do you know that's how he sees you? God counted Abram as righteous because he believed him. That's what Paul recalled in Romans 4. To give an example of how we're justified by faith alone apart from works, Abraham does have works, right? They'll, they'll come into view in later elements of the covenant, but we have to learn to see them as extending out of chapter 15, right? As um, God's gift to Abram for his faith. The whole, remember, God makes him righteous, declares him righteous before works ever enter the covenant. That's very important. The whole point of this text is that the covenant is declared right here, as we're going to see, to be fully secured by God. By God. This promise, this foundational shaping promise of the whole covenant itself is prior to any works that Abram has done or will do to secure the covenant. He is righteous now by God's reckoning because he still believes God's word. This is the basis of the covenant with Abram. Now comes the covenant-making ceremony itself. Look at 7 and 8. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So you see here in his two questions, the two big concerns that Abram has, the offspring and the land. But yet, the text just said Abram believes God. So, beloved, don't, Miss this. Don't miss this. Don't ever forget this. Verse 6 said that Abram believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. Well, guess what you find here? That belief, that faith that God himself actually counts as righteousness is still shot through with doubt and questions. That's faith that saves. Do you see that? 
Verse 6 just told us that this faith is such a big deal, God credits it to Abram as righteousness. That comes out of a question and a doubt. Where will the child, where is he? Where is he? I'll provide one. All right, I believe you. Righteous. Righteous. He's the object of your faith that saves. It's not you and it's not me. What will you give me? I don't have a single child yet. That's one. Two, how am I to know I shall possess this land, God? That man asking those questions, doubting the very statement of the promise itself. That man in that moment, in this chapter, is counted as righteous. The faith that saves and makes us righteous will still have its doubts and questions, beloved. The faith that believes God will, even if we can't understand how, still makes us righteous in God's sight. God is laying that principle out in Genesis 15, all the way at the beginning of the Bible. This is a pattern. This is not just a one-off moment. You and I are not holding on to salvation. Salvation is holding on to us. (coughs) Here's God's answer to Abram's question in verse 8. Verses 9 to 21. Excuse me here, I'm going to need to cough. (coughs) Here's the answer to the question in verse 8, beginning in verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. Again, this is the answer to a question. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. All those animals will have significance later. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That's how bloody and disgusting this all was. Okay. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites and Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God is repeating the promise of land that he had made Clear and explicit back in 12.7. Now, so far in Abram's experience, however, there's no evidence of this, right? There's no, every time he's in the land, other people are in the land. It's being threatened. The land is filled with other people. Again, some of them are threats to him and his family. And he has no offspring at this point to fight for it or keep it or hold on to it after he dies. So God repeats his promise. But here, God enshrines it within a covenant. Again, covenants are how God interacts in a saving way with sinners. Covenants are how God brings about his promises and will ultimately establish his kingdom on the earth. 
The ceremony here is a little strange, at least it is to us. It was a rather common way to solidify a covenant in the era around 2000 BC where Abram lived. Abram is told to gather animals and birds and cut them in half, again, placing each half over against the other except the birds. It's a bloody and gruesome scene. It's so bloody, again, that birds of prey try to devour it, but Abram shoes them away. That, that, that details in the text to tell you how real this was. Right? It, it, this attracted birds of prey, carrion birds, to the site. And then in verse 12, a deep sleep falls on the man again when God desires to remedy a situation. You remember Genesis 2. God put Adam to sleep when he saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. He put him to sleep. He brought Eve from him. This time, the situation that isn't good is that Abram is unable to comprehend how God will fulfill his promise. So deep sleep happened to Abraham here. It fell on him. That signals to us that God is about to give the cure to remedy Abram's doubt. So in verses 13 to 16, God tells Abram about the future during which his descendants will come back and reclaim the land that God has promised. Israel, Abram's physical offspring through Isaac and Jacob, will sojourn and become slaves in Egypt a land that is not theirs, for 400 years. 400 years. That's like, just think about that. They will be slaves as long as, if you go back in time, 400 years from where we are, that is like the the 1600s here. That's how long they would be slaves, from just after the Reformation to now. That's how long Israel would be in slavery in Egypt. But God promises to judge the nation of Egypt as well as deliver Abram's offspring with great possessions, continuing with that pattern from Abram's life. Abram, however, will pass away in peace long before this happens. He won't see it take place. So just imagine that. He he never saw it. He never saw it. But his offspring will return to the land in which Abram currently resides in the fourth generation. The prophecy is very specific because The iniquity of the Amorites, those currently dwelling in Abram's promised land. Remember, he's allies with them at this point. Their iniquity is not yet complete at the time God is making his promise to Abram. God is sovereign over evil. Don't ever question this. He's sovereign over every ounce of evil in the world. What does it mean the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete? It means that God will not forget his people. He's merely set a time in which he will avenge them. God may allow tyrants and oppressors to trample on his people for a very long time. But in the end, he will deal with them. God desires that all his creation worship him. The Amorites, the pagan citizens of Canaan, an idolatrous people, they will want nothing to do With worshiping the one true God. So God waited to give the promised land to Israel until all the iniquity of this pagan nation had run its course, until it was complete. Again, think of how sovereign God is here. At one point, He will say to the Amorites, That's enough. It ends today, now. Right? If God isn't sovereign over human will, how does this happen? Recognize it every time you see it. Every time you see it. He's going to wait until this pagan nation's iniquity has run its course. 
Again, in Abraham's day, they were his allies. They'd not yet become corrupt enough to lose Canaan at that moment. So the land won't immediately go to Abram. But without God, they would do what humans do. Of course, they're going to get worse. And when they finally did, God would use his people Israel. That's Joshua and Judges to carry out the sentence. Nobody will be judged arbitrarily by God. Those that rebel against him will be paid with justice down to the very last penny. Then, in Abram's vision in verse 17, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these dead animal pieces. Remember, the book of Genesis was given by Moses to the Israelite people as they were about to enter the land of Canaan after the Exodus. You remember that. Smoke and fire were symbols of God's presence. There was a pattern established here that smoke and fire as the presence of God are not just neat images. When they come to Israel, they mean that God is acting out of the covenant with Abram. That's why he's protecting Israel and guiding them through the wilderness with the same images he did to make the covenant with Abram. Because God doesn't forget his covenants. He doesn't overlook his own word. Remember, the angel of the Lord first appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. Exodus 3.2. During the desert journey out of Egypt, God appears as a cloud of smoke and fire. Exodus 13.21 at Mount Sinai. His presence was manifested by smoke and fire. Exodus 19.20.18. The verb here. In Genesis 15:18, clearly states that this ceremony we're about to see or that we're seeing formalizes a covenant between God and Abram. This is the Hebrew here is karat berit. It means to cut a covenant, to make a brand new one. So this covenant is not reestablishing a prior covenant like the one with Noah. This is establishing something totally new, totally different. It's the only, it's the last new beginning before Jesus comes. With the new covenant, the new creation. This ceremony of making a covenant involves an oath in which the partners of the covenant agree to bring the curse of death down on themselves if they're not faithful to their side of the covenant relationship and promises. Walking between the animals cut in half is a way of saying, may I become like these dead animals if I don't keep my promises and keep my oath. This is serious, but notice something. I'm sure that you see it. That is absolutely crucial to everything about our Christianity. Everything. Abram does not walk through these dead animal pieces. Only God does. Only God passes between the pieces of the animals. What is God trying to say? The promise, the keeping of this covenant depends on me and me alone. Now that shapes whatever is said about the covenant from this moment forward. You can't ever lose sight of Genesis 15. God will keep both sides of the covenant. That's made clear at its ratification. The physical promised land that at this moment belonged to people who will become Israel's enemies will one day be given to Israel. We see that come to pass. The Bible even tells us those promises are being fulfilled in Joshua. But spiritually, finally and fully, they are fulfilled in the way that God ultimately intended in the grandeur of his promise through Christ and the new heavens and the new earth.
Our God is an awesome God. What a guy. Right? He deeply and sincerely loves us. The creator of the universe, the holy and righteous God, came down from heaven to a nomad's dirty tent in the dry, hot desert of the Negev to comfort his servant and proclaim by covenant his undying love and mercy and grace for his people. Give me a heifer, give me a goat and a ram, a dove and a young pigeon. This is God. Right? This is God. And when they were sacrificed and laid out on both sides, this is disgusting. As the blood poured out all over in between them, our God made a covenant. In the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, God walked barefoot, so to speak, through a pool of blood. God did that. And it wasn't the last time. A human having to do that would be gross enough. But God doing it, God even appearing to do it, isn't he shamed by that? Isn't it beneath him? Yes, it is. That's the whole point. In all his power and majesty, he expressed his love for Abram in this covenant personally, closely. God doesn't have to use an earthly ceremony to do this. God participates in a crude Traditional Near Eastern covenant making ceremony. Making the seriousness of his covenant unavoidably clear and earthy to someone like Abram in that time and place. I love you, Abram. And I promise that this covenant will come true for you and for your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand so that you'll believe me. God passing between the carcasses of animals. Blood everywhere. God was willing to express in terms his chosen people could understand. That he would never fail to do what he promised. And the voice of this whisper, the echo of this moment is fulfilled. When the son of God will give his own life covered in blood on the cross. A ram that very soon this man will see caught in the thickets when again God puts himself in harm's way to keep this covenant. God's dealings with Abram are not some remote piece of biblical history far away somewhere to be filed away. Beloved, the New Testament makes it clear that we too, you and I, you and I are part of this long line of people with whom God made a covenant on that barren plain near Hebron. When God walked in the dust of the desert through the blood of these animals Abram had killed, he was making a promise to all his descendants, to all the household of faith. It's Galatians 3.7, Galatians 3.29. Those are his descendants. That's the ultimate reason God is shedding blood. Not for a strip of land in the Middle East, but for his people. When God splashed through that blood, he did it for us too. So we're not simply in a private or individual relationship with God. We're part of a very long line of people marching all the way back through history to the very beginning. From our Jewish ancestors, David, Hezekiah, Peter, to the millions of believers through the ages we've never known. 
from those elect ancient Israelites and Jewish people of Jesus' day to the Christians in the early church were part of a community of people with whom God established a covenant in the dust and the blood and the sand of the Negev. When God made a covenant with his people, he was doing something that no human being would have ever considered doing. I mean, imagine the responsibility you're taking on yourself in this covenant to walk through it, and you're the only one that walks through it. Listen, do you realize what God is doing? Abram, if you break this, I'll get killed. I'll pay the penalty for it. I'll do it. I hear all the time, all the time, that if you give people grace, they're just going to use it as license. So you've you got to keep them in line. I'm going to keep this covenant no matter what you do. God said that. God said that. Maybe grace is stronger than we give it credit for. Maybe we should stop doubting the way God has chosen to save and keep his covenant with our own concern that we'll go off the rails. In these blood covenants, each party was responsible for keeping his side of the promise. But when God made a covenant with Abram, he promised to keep both sides of the covenant. That's what he's doing. So I bear the penalty not just for me, but for you too if this gets broken. What kind of grace? What is grace? What is it? If the covenant is broken for whatever reason, Abram, my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price. Doesn't that give Abram no incentive whatsoever to ever be obedient? Do you see that? Is God crazy? No, he's God and he's able to keep the covenant. The man's already righteous. God's already won. That's what happened to you. Rest in him. God was never going to be unfaithful. God knew when he made the promise what it was going to take for him to keep it. He knew every step he walked through those two animals. I am going to have to bear the penalty of this being broken because he's going to break it. And so is everyone else that's his descendant, spiritual or physical. We just think we can be more righteous than God. Whoa, pump the brakes. No. He knew when he made it what it was going to take for it to be kept. He knew when he made it that he was going to be the one dying because we were going to break this side of it. And he, was ne- he wasn't lying. At that moment, when you realize at this moment, all the way back in Genesis 15, the moment God walks through this, he's sentencing his own son to death. You realize that. For you and for me. All the way back then. My great, 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 great. They're not even born yet. Because just like every single person that came before us, we have broken that covenant. We haven't haven't kept our side of the covenant. We haven't kept our side of the bargain. God was going to have to pay the price. But he has, once and for all, 
The covenant has been and will forever be kept. This is the power of the blood of the innocent lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God of the covenant, beloved. This is our God. We have a promise spoken to us in blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. That is the reason our salvation is secure. And I hate any other doctrine to the contrary. I hate it. I hate it. It's all from his side. He has bound himself to its accomplishment. So tonight, do you realize what Genesis 15 means for you? For your life? For your soul? I mean, how how many of you beloved brothers and sisters of mine have been laboring your whole life with your blood, sweat, and tears of righteousness for God to finally call you righteous? Stop. Stop. It's done. This is the work Jesus is finishing when he dies. This is the work. Our salvation is not up in the air tonight. God is going to keep both sides of the covenant. This makes us who we are. This is what makes it worthwhile for this church to be in this community. This is the message we have. We aren't selling something that you can lose. We aren't selling something you have to gain for yourself. If that was our message, what's the point? The certainty of our salvation has been secured for all who have faith in the word of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. When we're not living up to our side of the bargain, God has already paid the price for our breach of contract. Here's the amazing thing about it. Tell me that I'm wrong. When you hear that, you hate your sin. You don't love it. You don't think, oh man, I'm just going to go do whatever I want. You don't think, am I crazy? You, You think I don't want to do that thing anymore. I don't want to. Here's the thing, the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. I wish it wasn't, beloved. I wish we could get up and talk about how successful we've been and how well we've done. That's not the way God is going to get his glory. Do you see that? Stop worrying about the glory of God. It's not yours to secure. When God walked through these pieces of animals, he was saying, I'm going to secure the way so that I get all my glory. He's not looking to you to make sure his glory remains intact for all eternity for saving you. That's why he put his own blood on the line and not ours because we fail. He doesn't. That's the basis of everything we have. He's already made us righteous. Knowing of the sins and failures we haven't even committed yet. I mean, what, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? I mean, that, that you know, it, it doesn't cover all your sin. Man. Jared Wilson said once, I know this sounds earthy, just you got to consider it. He said, imagine marrying a woman that you knew would cheat on you every day. Would you still marry her? Jesus did. 
See, that's the gospel. That's it. You can no sooner snatch yourself from the Father's hand or take yourself out of this covenant than God can deny himself. That's, that's the impetus for everything. You have every right now to live free. Try it. Our hope is not in a promise made. It's in a promise kept. By Jesus. To the glory of God. For you and for me. You rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. There were conditions to be met. There always have been. It's just... God met them and credits it all to us who believe. That's how you're counted as righteous when you just believe because you get all that obedience as though you did it. This can't be better, beloved. It just can't be. Promise in blood will never be broken, ever. I'm going to be down front if you need to pray for any reason. If you want to pray... As soon as I'm done praying here, we'll, I'll, I'll come down. We're going to sing page 487 out of our hymnal, page 487. Let me pray. Father, there are so many things in our lives that threaten to steal the hope and the peace that you walked through those pieces of dead animals to buy for us to have. And it wasn't the first time that your feet would be covered in blood, so to speak, or your head or your, that of your son, I should say. Lord, this is, this is the way you save us, with, with the source of life itself. Father, we praise you tonight. I thank you for this group that is gathered here tonight. I pray that all of them know you. I don't have any reason to think that they don't. I just pray that they do. Lord, I pray that you would watch over our souls as we look back and ponder, because our flesh is going to tell us it's too good to be true. The enemy is going to lie to us. The world is going to mock the whole notion of such an insane thing to base our lives on. But, Father, it's true. It's just true. You can handle us. You can handle us. You knew what you were doing, what you were committing yourself to when you made this covenant. So, Father, have mercy on us. We don't want to sin against you. Father, we fail. Lord, be close to us. Let us remember what you did and what it means and what it buys. I pray that for every person in our church to believe and know with all of their hearts. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.